I don't know what my wife was thinking. She just made a crazy error in judgment, I think. But that might go all the way back to marrying me. Who knows? I wish I'd known early on that growth is what's important, not the rate of growth. In fact, the study went on to show that the fastest growth companies were also the most likely to fail in five years following their fastest growth. You know, they were like, well, the hurricane's going to get here tomorrow, so let's just put off our meeting till next week. I'm like, I will drive in the hurricane to come see you. And I might start off just a little bit differently. I think it'll be a good hook right in the beginning, just talking about your company culture and how long you've had company culture and what it was like before. Well, hey, Austin, thanks for letting me be on the show today and really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast. It's just taken off like crazy. I know people are excited to hear from all the different industries that you are interviewing, and we're honored to be a part of that. The thing that occurred to me that we're kind of, I don't know, starting to get a niche or at least known for is the culture around our office. I'm not real sure how we ended up with great company culture, but we did. And of course, that's passing. I mean, we could have bad culture next year or the year after, but for the last season, we've had a great culture that keeps getting written up in all kinds of periodicals, and we've won a bunch of awards, and, and enough that people said, hey, William, how did you guys do this? And so we dropped back and said, how did we do this? And we kind of reverse engineered, oh, here's how we started out. And I kind of laugh and tell people, when we started, it was just me. So we had awesome culture because every staff meeting was awesome. Everybody got along. It was just me. So all the votes were unanimous. But as we added people, we had to make sure it was people we wanted to work with and that we were doing work we wanted to do. The longer we were working together, the more we realized this is really kind of unique. And about two years in, we went on a retreat and instead of doing a what's our five-year strategic plan or our seven S's of business or these sort of business strat-op planning, we said, what's our culture? What is it about us that makes us unique to us? And the way we said it was, what do we do when we're functioning at our very, very best? What do we do that's common to us, but uncommon to other groups of people or other teams or other companies? And, and that sort of launched us into thinking through kind of the craziness that we are. We, we tell people all the time, if you want to come work here, you've got to be a little bit crazy. But if you're the same kind of crazy as us, you'll love it here. That sort of launched us into naming our values and then driving them through the organization. And man, it feels a lot better than other businesses I've been a part of, other organizations that I actually was also in charge of running that didn't have great culture. It's just refreshing when you enjoy the way you do your work and the people you do that work with. It makes good times and bad times better than they would ever be in another circumstance. When you started off, you said, obviously, you had the best company culture of all time when it's just you and you're enjoying it. <laughs> and had you just learned from your positions before that you wanted to have great company culture into the company you have today? Or I don't feel like it could have just happened by happenstance. There had to be some thinking put into it. Well, it's probably, a, I tell people, we kind of came on the scene fast. Our search firm grew very quickly and continues to grow, which has been really awesome. But we're kind of the 20-year overnight success. Everything we've done that's happened quickly and by happenstance is really just a, an accumulation of lessons I've learned from doing things the wrong way, of lessons I've learned along the way, and frankly, lessons I'm learning from the people around me that are younger than I am. I think when I started the business 10 years ago, people weren't even talking about company culture. 
And it's only been in the last few years that people have taken any sort of premeditated look at it. When we started our cultural values, it was brand new to us. We hadn't studied anybody else. I didn't have some master plan for figuring this all out. But we went off on this retreat and we said, when we're functioning at our best, what do we do that's common to us and uncommon to the rest of the world? And we just started throwing up great stories. We said, somebody tell a story about a really great, yeah, we got it right then moment, which by the way is a great way to start a retreat because everybody is telling fun stories and that's all happy memories. Literally all over the wall, there were stories written of the good things we've done. And then we said, let's look and see, is there a common thread among these stories? Do they fall into groupings of characteristics? Like one of the things that came up was uh, we're pretty fast to respond to people, whether it's in sales, I've always said speed wins. People generally don't return calls. And if you just return a call pretty quickly, that makes you in the minority. Story after story came up about our responsiveness and how it marked us as different. It ended up being one of about nine different buckets you know, speed being one. In other words, we have a lot of fun together. And all these buckets started to emerge with the different traits that we show that are common to us, but uncommon to other teams that we've worked on or with in our life. Then we put all that away for a few months. Frankly, we just grew real fast and didn't have time to look at it. We came back to it. And so we probably ought to pull that paper out of the drawer and start working on things again. You know, it was a big mistake to wait that long, I thought. But it turns out it was absolutely what I'd recommend to everybody. My wife says it this way, William, when you make chili, it's always better after it's been in the fridge for a couple of days. And I'm like, you know, that's right. So we'd had these stories and they sort of sat in the fridge for a few months. We pulled them back out and it was like, yeah, no, that's right. We're not just caught up in retreat high. This actually is who we are. And, and we were able to narrow those buckets down and get a little finer language around it. And then I went off, sort of wordsmithed them into a sticky way of hearing things. And then we just started to drive them into the organization. And it really took a life of its own. And only looking back, now that culture is sort of a buzzword and everybody's talking about it and everybody's giving out awards, you know, our, <laughs> our dog comes to the office and in a best places to work thing that I didn't even know we'd entered, he won best office dog in Houston. Why do you give that award? But now it's a buzzword. Now it's a thing. And people want to hear about culture. We've gone and looked at what did we do to get here? And a lot of it really was by happenstance. How do you map a plan for that? And then how do you share that with other companies so that they can say, we want to do this in a premeditated way and, and build an irresistible workplace? And for someone who's listening right now might have their own company and are trying to learn from what you've taught and maybe what you teach at conferences. Could you give us a few bullet points that you normally hit on? Yeah. First of all, the first key to understanding your culture is finding out if it's any good or not. You might have a toxic culture. If you've got a really bad culture, there are several traits you can look at. We outline them in the book that we're putting out. Communication, both up and down the org chart. If those nine indicators are not healthy, then you need to address that lack of health. And usually that means addressing people because culture at its root is defined by how the people that you're with function with one another. And if it's truly toxic, then it may not be fixable without changing some people. That's kind of hard news. But once that's done, once you've determined we actually do have some health, then it's really down to defining what your exact culture is. And that's not going to the coolest company you can find and stealing their slide deck, like the Netflix culture slide deck, which you can Google, is pretty awesome. But it wouldn't work in our company at all. It's not our family. I tell people discovering your best company culture is not going off the mountain to find 
two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. It's really doing more of an archaeological dig around the people that you're working with and just carefully looking at when we're at our best, what do we do that's common to us, that's uncommon to the rest of the teams around us. Then you can start to discover how your unique wiring allows you to win on the days that you win really well. But how about the people who are listening here and thinking, hey, you know, I'm just trying to get by. I'm trying to make my company strive just to get to the next paycheck for my workers. I don't have time for this culture stuff. What do you say to them? <laughs> when we started to write this book, I didn't want it to be a book just about our story. I mean, there are a couple of culture books out there that are really cool stories of companies. Google has one. Zappos has one. They're great, but they don't say, okay, what's everybody that's winning awards doing? So we talked to probably a hundred CEOs of people that are winning these kind of awards saying, what are you doing? What's the process? And, and one of the questions I asked was, why do you spend all this time on this? Why spend the money on it? I don't have time for it. The world moves fast. Time and time again, I had CEOs say to me, William, the time and money we spend on culture is worth every penny. If I heard one answer that was more common than anything else, it was that they have retention. Their good people stay longer because of good culture. More than making the bottom line, more than having a fat bonus check. It's the culture and the people that you're with. Because, you know, when you're working somewhere, you're spending most of your waking hours with the people you work with, not with your family or your friends. If work can feel like family and friends and feel like a place you want to be, you'll stay longer. And that saves companies money. One CEO I interviewed, he's in a tech industry, sells a software solution that's driven by people, not an automated thing. He's got two other competitors. All three companies charged the same fee in general, and they all three have about the same volume of business. He said his earnings before taxes, depreciation, EBITDA, his were two times better than the other two companies. And I said, why? And he said, because in our industry, annual turnover is about 38%. And with me, it's 1%. If I've got 500 employees and I'm losing 38% of them, what, 170 or more searches that I'm going to have to hire you to do in a year to replace the people that are walking out the back door. So I've got to pay a recruiter. I've got downtime with people gone where I'm not productive because I've got an empty desk. Then I've got new people. And if you've ever been new at a job, you know, the first several months you're there, you really don't know what you're doing. So all the costs that are tied into recruiting, restaffing, re-onboarding people, he said, Anything I spend on culture that keeps people a little longer puts me ahead. It gives me a competitive advantage. One guy I talked to who has made his career teaching people how to manage their money carefully told me how he spent literally seven figures on culture last year and would do it every time over again because it always pays for itself in retaining great employees. It sounds like right there is the main reason that we should be worried about this conversation or like interested is you're saying retention is the number one reason for company culture. And if you're able to keep that, it's gonna make everything else just strive that much better. Well, if you're just talking about pure ROI, like I'm putting money in, is money coming back out? Culture money that's put in comes back out in retention of your people, but it also comes out in productivity. Great example in our office, and I stumbled across it. Have you ever heard of Uber puppies? Not Uber puppies, no. But Seriously. Tell us, tell us about it. Neither had I. Apparently, we're in Houston, which is a fairly large city and a large market for Uber. In their larger markets, they have this thing called Uber puppies. It's a random sort of pop-up day where Uber partners with the ASPCA. And the ASPCA, if, if you're an Uber subscriber or you're, you, know, you get push notifications from them, 
randomly, they'll select people. You can sign up to be in the lottery. Oh, Uber Puppies this day, you put your name in. If you, quote, win, then Uber will send the ASPCA over to your office with a half dozen puppies or so. All of them, of course, the ASPCA is trying to get adopted, find homes for. Then they'll come to your office and they'll play for 20 or 30 minutes and then they leave. And if anybody's interested in a puppy, then they can contact ASPC. So it's kind of a nice win-win. Well, I knew nothing about it. We have all these millennials here at the office. I think 71% of our workforce is under 35. I hear my assistant across the hall saying, we won, we won. I'm like, oh, cool. Well, we, we won Uber puppies. What's Uber puppies? So she tells me the story of the Uber puppies. So I'm like, okay, fine. So the puppies show up. And it was like, I don't know, two in the afternoon. And they were there 20 or 30 minutes and then they're gone. But the reality is we spent Lord knows how much time putting our names in for the Uber puppies. Okay. And then we had to wait on the puppies to get there. And then we played with the puppies and then we had to have selfies with the puppies. Then we had to decide which selfie to post and what filter to use. And so, I mean, we talked about the puppies after they were gone. So the 20 or 30 minutes was probably two and a half hours of lost productivity, right? In fact, I went home that night and my wife said, William, did you check out social media at all today? And I said, yeah, you know, the Uber puppies and the da, 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 da. And she said, what are we paying them for? <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of laughed. But by the time it was all over, it was mid-afternoon. And I don't know how your office is, but three o'clock is not a fun hour, not high energy. I laugh and tell people, you know, that's when Jesus died. It's a tough hour. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at three o'clock at our office, we were super high energy, super productive, and more got done. And we bonded as a team. So it wasn't just about retaining employees, but the productivity that was gained from the couple of hours that I, quote, sacrificed for culture was through the roof. And people still talk about it. We did draw the line with Uber piglets. They apparently have come out with now. But I said, no, no livestock, just the puppies are fine. And I think what you said is that's exactly how I would feel. And probably a lot of business owners feel. You're like, okay, exactly what your wife said. I'd be like, you know, I'm paying them to do something. And then while that hour, they're not getting something done. But Sometimes you just step away and think about, like you said, how much happier were they and might probably driven that next week, two weeks, three weeks, just from two to three hours that you actually spent doing it. I think that's important to bring up. And then why don't you go ahead and I guess tell us your name and tell us the company work. I want to just jump right in and dive in why people should be interested. And I think we kind of hit on that. Okay. And now if you could talk to us about yourself a little bit personally and your company, I'll just kind of ask you questions from uh, there. My name's William Vanderblumen. I started a company in 2008. It changed a name into Vanderblumen Search a little bit later, but it started with just churches hiring us to help them find their pastor, kind of an executive search firm for churches. Since then, we've branched out and there are a lot of businesses that hire us and there's schools and relief organizations. But functionally, people who are values driven, that work at a company that's values driven, will hire us to help them find their key staff been a really fun ride and cool to see how many different ways it's expanding and growing over the years. So were there any other search firms that did this or what made you want to get in, I guess, the ministry side of searching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. You know, I, I'm full of them. Well, you are. Good questions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I guess if I really wanted to make money, I'd be doing oil and gas search. You know, we charge a, a percentage of the person's salary that we place. I realized over the years that student pastors make less than CEOs of oil and gas companies. So uh, <laughs> it wasn't really ever about the money. I had been a pastor for about 15 years. 
uh, at churches of all different sizes as the lead pastor of, from 140 people to the last one I served here in Houston was about 5,000 adults and a couple thousand kids. And, you know, we had a school and kind of a whole, you know, couple hundred people working there. So it was in Texas, we're careful to use the word big because there's always someone that has bigger, but fairly good size. So I'd always kind of loved the church, but went into the business world, into a Fortune 200 company, into an oil and gas company, saw them go through a CEO succession very quickly and was immediately reminded at how slowly churches are able to find their pastors. I thought, oh my goodness, this big company with a, at the time their market cap was larger than Starbucks. They went through a CEO succession from a guy who'd been there a very long time to a guy who's now been there almost 10 years, which is a lifetime for a Fortune 200 CEO. How did they do that in 90 days when churches have to take a year and a half or two years? It just questioned, sparked in my head. What would it be like if we could build a solution for the church that's as good as or better than what the business world has? I knew a little bit about the church. I went and learned executive search from a guy who'd been with a search firm called Russell Reynolds, which is one of the world's best. The two streams of experience kind of came together, and that started with me on a card table. I remember I, <laughs> when I first had the idea, I went home. Adrian and I had just gotten married. We're a blended family, so we had six kids. We just bought a house, and I said, hey, babe, I think I'm supposed to quit my job and start something new for churches. She looked at me, and she, she said, that's because churches just love new ideas, right? <laughs> Which, if you've been around the church at all, you know that's just not true. But to her credit, in our marriage, I'm the dreamer. She's the realist, right? I, oh, I got a great idea. And she's like, yeah, but we don't have any money in the bank. I'm supposed to come home and say, I want to quit my job and start something new for churches. And then she's supposed to say back to me, oh, I love you and your dreams are awesome, but we've got all these children and we need to just stay the course. And instead she said, let's give it a try. And that sort of kicked off what where we are today. And we started on a card table and, and we had a little room that we rented and then there were two rooms and now we're, it's a very small niche, but we're about 15,000 square feet and 40 people and hiring. And it's really cool to see how the thing has progressed over the years. And, and we've done it all organically. I know you're a Dave Ramsey fan. I am too. So we did it with no debt, no venture capital, just pure organic growth. So we probably could have gone faster. We could have made more money if we were just starting working in corporate sector. But it was really a love for what I've come to see, what I've come to see the church and its ability to help a community. It has made me say, you know, if the church is doing better, then the whole community does better. And now since then, other companies have hired us, other schools, other relief organizations. So it's not just churches, but that was our start. And it was, uh, how can we help people who are trying to do a good thing, build a better team. And what made you want to do that Fortune 200 company? Because it seems like this might have been the change after you went from the church to a Fortune 200 company. Why did you make that transition then? Well, the raw truth is I went through a divorce and I was a single dad with four kids in the house. <laughs> had to do something else. I wasn't in any shape to preach. So I you know, resigned church position took some time to figure out what I was going to do and had an offer to come join this company. And they said, you don't know oil and gas, but you know people. So why don't you come into our HR department and learn the business and we'll see where it leads. And within a year, they were very, very good to me and good people made good money, but it just was not what I was wired up to do. It didn't fit me. And that wasn't them being wrong. It was just not a match. It made me start saying, I wonder what I could do. And when I saw them go through their succession, their transition, I thought, oh, wow, there's a need 
that could be done really well for churches. And now I'm discovering could be done really well for lots of different businesses. I think it'll be fun to hear what the interview sounds like in 10 more years, because I think doors are opening into other sectors that are going to be pretty exciting. Will you say that's the most difficult part of your journey thus far? Well, on a personal side or a business side? Personal. Oh, on a personal side, I would not recommend divorce. <laughs> it's not, not on my things to get done list. I would just say, <laughs> don't go through it if you don't have to. It was, it's, you have to rewire your whole world. But my kids are in great shape and I never would have met Adrian and you know, we've been married 10 years now and that never would have happened. So God has a way of making lemonade out of lemons. And the adjustment was hard, but I wouldn't trade where I am now for the world. And you said you basically had to do that for financial reasons. What type of money, because I'm just trying to get an idea if I was in your shoes at that point, like what type of money were you making at that point? And then what was the transition? Like how much more were you making at the 200 company there? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get into financials of a church. I don't think that's appropriate, but even if it's personal to you, I'm sorry. Well, I'm just trying to, the entrepreneurial story is that, Hey, you weren't making enough, right? At the church before. No, no, no. That's not the story. I loved what I did. I made good money. Not anyone who goes into ministry to get rich is either really malicious or really dumb or both. <laughs> but you're not going to go without. It was a great church and they paid me well. You know, it was just, I wasn't in any shape to be leading people and I was a single dad. So I stepped out of the church world, stepped into the business world. And, you know, financially it was a fairly lateral move, but the hard switch, I'll tell you, Austin, the hardest switch financially was a mindset switch for me because I had been a pastor as part of the Presbyterian denomination. So if you look at it like functionally from a business standpoint, I was a member of a union. I had really high job security. It's not easy to fire a pastor. It takes a lot of congregational votes and all these different things. So functionally, I was like a tenured professor or a union member. I kind of had guaranteed employment. And I was working at a church that, you know, it's a nonprofit. And every year you wanted to make sure that the bottom line matched up so you didn't lose money every year. But we had a big endowment. It's the first Presbyterian church of Houston. I mean, like Sam Houston attended there. It's been around a long time. So it's not like it was going to fold. So to go from, I'm using crass terms here, but to go from union member working at a company that had somewhat of a trust fund to being an entrepreneur starting on a card table with a temporary file box, no idea whether it was going to work or not. That shift of the mind was 180 degrees. And like I had never had to work a lot with duct tape and paper clips <laughs> to kind of shift gears into thinking like an entrepreneur. That was a huge challenge for me. I was just going to talk a little bit more about your top 200 company and then the transition that you made. Because it's to me, it seems like a huge transition, obviously, going from a pastor, kind of like you, what you were saying, yeah. to the oil company, right? Yeah. And I'm just trying to see, what did they see in you or what were you able to sell? Did you always have that hard worker mentality? That's the reason I asked about the money as well. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I'm just trying yeah. to think the shift in mindset. Sure. No, the shift in mindset really wasn't going from First Presbyterian to Anadarko, which is the oil and gas company. The mind shift for me came from, I've got this regular paycheck that I know is coming from a company that's not going to run out of money and job security to, I'm starting my own thing. I don't know if it's going to sell or not. If I don't kill it and drag it in the cave, we're not eating. And that was a major shift. And that happened between leaving a Fortune 200 company or the 15 years prior being kind of this union member to starting my own gig. Everything had to be rewired in my brain for that. And no, I agree with you. That was going to be my next step in the story, the transition, because I was just wondering how much were you able to save up when you said you had to worry about six kids, right? Yeah. 
That was my next transition is, yeah, you were able to save up enough money for a year to do that. How much money did you have in savings? And then what did you sell your wife on, on why you think it would work? I don't know what my wife was thinking. She's just made a crazy error in judgment, I think, but that might go all the way back to marrying me. Who knows? <laughs> I tell people that's the best search I've ever done. <laughs> no, I think that the value that we I was bringing to the oil and gas company, if there is one, is that in working in ministry, you know people. And so they put me in the HR department and said, learn this industry and work with people and help us figure out where we could be better. They just bought two large companies, two acquisitions. So they're in the middle of a lot, their own cultural shift. Yeah. I don't know that I ever really fit there though. I, it wasn't, oh man, if I could just go back and stay at the oil and gas company. And it's a great company. I, I've recommended many people to go work there. And then, so how much were you able to save up when you started and told your wife about the search firm? Let's start. I'd like to talk about the, I guess, beginning year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. I say I risked everything. My friend Dave Ramsey says, no, you took a very calculated risk because we operate within Dave's principles, had a six month emergency fund, six months of savings for, we can just live for six months and be fine. When we started the company. We said, you know, we could do six months of our current lifestyle without drawing a paycheck. Of course, you wouldn't have giant savings accounts or retirement accounts, but we had that much money to just be able to subsist while we were seeing if this was going to get going or not. We probably could have made it nine months or a year. We would have had to change our lifestyle quite a bit, but we knew six months. So we said, all right, if we haven't seen some traction within three months, and that doesn't mean lots of deals coming in, but some traction, then we're going to have to have some hard conversations. If we hadn't seen anything happen in six months, then we're probably going to have to pull the plug on it. I'd like to think we would have waited a year, but we didn't have to do that. Things started happening pretty quickly. That made the first year a lot more tenable. But I remember, Kali, the first real sales visit I had that looked like it was going to happen and we were going to get a search. I was supposed to go up to the church and meet with their I don't know, personnel committee or something like that. A hurricane came through Houston. It was Hurricane Ike, which was here was a really big deal. You know, they were like, well, the hurricane's going to get here tomorrow. So let's just put off our meeting till next week. I'm like, I will drive in the hurricane to come see you. I'll come to your house, whatever you, I was so mad at the stupid hurricane for showing up and ruining what was going to be my first sale. And of course the storm came and went, the sale went through. It was the first one. I remember calling Adrian saying, let's have steak for dinner. We have <laughs> dragged something in the cave. It was such a good feeling to, to say, okay, this worked this one time. And ever since then, I don't know that any entrepreneur really ever thinks that their business is going to keep growing forever. They're always a little bit worried. When's this going to stop? When's the other shoe going to drop? During that first year, we had a lot of those thoughts. There are a lot fewer of those now. When you start the thing on your own, you don't ever shake free of the idea that, oh man, I remember back when we had nothing. So when you did that first sale, do you make 1% of just initial salary or is it just onwards? Like how do you make money exactly? Just like any other search firm, like any executive search firm, we charge a retainer and it's based on a percentage of the first year's salary. I don't think I've had a search firm on yet where we discuss that. So that's just for if anyone has not heard of a search firm and how they make money, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, Austin, there are a lot of different, like there are a lot of different types of search out there. You could call. I've heard a lot of them. That, that's why I thought your story was interesting too. So keep going. Yeah. No, ours is really kind of weird. A lot of people, job boards are kind of a search thing like monster.com and indeed and that sort of thing. We're sort of the other end of the spectrum where we say, here's the money we're going to charge you. And we would like you to pay us irrespective of whether we find somebody or not. So it's not like a paid on delivery kind of thing. And that's a crazy thing to sell. Like from a sales, 
I've always loved selling things. And from a sales perspective, that's pretty dang nuanced because our entire economy is built on pay upon delivery. You build a house, you pay them as they build it. Buy a car, you pay it when you pick it up. But ours is wired a little differently. It's a very high trust, very much a people are buying based on the belief that we're going to get things done. That doesn't come easy and you can't go messing around with that trust or it will disappear very quickly. And did you start off with that model? I did. How were you able to sell them on that model? Well, actually, the first sale I made was to somebody I'd never met before. So that was kind of interesting. But a lot of the first connections were people that I'd known for 15 years of working with churches. And can you tell us about the very first sale? Because I always think that's interesting. You said you had someone you didn't even know. So it sounds like it might be more interesting. Oh, it was a, a church here local, but that's not how I knew them. I had a friend who was a consultant who had done some work for them. He mentioned that I ought to get in touch with this pastor of this church. So I just reached out cold and called him and kind of told him my story. And I think maybe there is a sense, especially with some of the early sales I made, the people I was talking to were pastors of large churches, and they knew I had been a pastor of a large church. And there is a little bit of a, oh, you're one of the guys, or you're in the union, or you know, there's just a trust factor there. You sat in my chair, so you understand what I'm going through. And then maybe you know some of it was just... Uh, some ability to sell. I think that is important because if they're a pastor, there aren't, doesn't seem like there's too many out there, right? And if you're able to sit in the same seat with them, then that makes sense why you would be able to sell them on that. Can you tell us, I mean, so has it been steady growth, positive growth since day one? Yeah, every quarter has been better than the year before for a long, long time now. I think now we're starting to see like year over year, Q3 is our slowest quarter, but it's always been better than Q3 of the year before, you know, that kind of growth. But I'm not a huge fan of crazy fast growth. My fear is that I always have the fear that I will outsell what I'm able to deliver. So we're really focused on building delivery systems and not just the sales piece. So for us, if we can keep the growth between 15 and 20%, that feels like the guardrails that are right for long, sustainable growth. If I were an internet startup and I was raising a bunch of money and in a really fast race to get my widget online before anybody else, I'd take a different tack. But with what we're doing with organic growth, 15 to 20% feels about right. If we go higher than that, great. And we did in the early years, it's easy to double when you made nothing the year before. <laughs> but uh, as, you know, as you stack growth, percentage growth gets harder and harder. What's the most interesting search you've had to do? Because you said you didn't just stay within the ministry, correct? <laughs> yeah. Wow. God, there's so many that come to mind. I mean, they're all so interesting because churches are so incredibly nuanced. We had one church that has many, many locations. It's located in a part of the country that's not the easiest to convince people to move to. Because they had multiple locations, they needed kind of a building superintendent. So they needed to have all these certifications of like, you know, I forget what all the letters were that have to go after their name so they can do contracts and they can do all the different things that have to happen with these multiple campuses. And I'm like, I've never looked for this kind of person before. And they're like, well, that's fine. You know us and you get our DNA. And so then they were explaining a little bit more about their DNA. And you almost have to have a theology degree to understand just how tight a niche they were theologically. And they wanted a building guy with all these very niche certifications. And it... <laughs> I mean, I almost laughed when I hung up the phone, but I was like, are you sure you want me to look for this? Oh yeah, you'll find it. Sure enough, things have always worked out, but it's always those searches that it's something I've never looked for before that are really fascinating. And I, I think that's why we've been able to branch out and grow and even grow past the church some is people aren't hiring us anymore. Maybe if they hired us at the beginning because I've been a pastor and I've sat in your chair, now they're hiring us. It's like those guys know how to look at a puzzle they've never seen before and deliver a solution. Those are always the most interesting. 
when you got started, were there other search firms as well? Or were you the first one that you know of? No, well, there were a couple. I had actually tried using one. Okay, so that's perfect. Because you were password before, you knew kind of why they weren't great at what they did maybe? Oh man, I, I'm not going to say names because the guy's a nice guy, but I tried using one and they're all like solo shop guys. And I tried using one when I was a pastor and I'd talk on the phone with this guy and I felt like I needed to take a shower afterward. It felt dirty. It felt just bad, kind of underhanded or in the shadows or something. I'm like, no, I'm not building that. I want top drawer service. I want people to be proud to say that they've used us and not just some dude in the alley that's shuffling resumes around. There wasn't really anybody that established as a company. There certainly wasn't anybody with employees and office space and you know all that sort of thing. Do you just do Christianity or do any of Jewish brothers call you? They haven't. I talked to, I was on a plane not too long ago and, and was talking to a guy who's chairing his search committee for a new rabbi. And, you know, we kind of kicked around, well, maybe that could work. So who knows? Maybe that'll be in the future. But our commitment is to growing with excellence and not just growing for the sake of growth. So uh, we want to keep delivering what we can. And as it branches out, we'll just see what happens. And looking back, what's been some of the most important things that you've learned now that you're looking back that you wish you knew earlier about growing your company? Yeah, I love that question. I, I try to ask my guests the same one. I wish I'd known early on that growth is what's important, not the rate of growth. So like a few years in, I read a study. I was at a seminar for fast growth companies through, I think it was Inc. or Fast Company, something like that. It was a big presentation from the Economic Research Institute about predicting growth. They said, so let's look at all small businesses. How many of them grew for the five years between, and they picked, I think it was between 2001 and 2007 or six. In that five years, what percentage of small businesses grew at all each of those years? Could grow 1%, could grow 100%, but some growth each year for five years in a row. The answer, which I would have guessed was, I don't know, half of them, you know, the answer is out of all the businesses in the country, less than 1% grew for those five consecutive years. So then they looked at the next five years. And of those companies that grew for five consecutive years, what percentage of those companies grew all five of the next years? And it was like over 85%. And the point of the study was people get way too caught up in how fast am I growing when the real question for sustainable growth is, am I growing? And so, in fact, the study went on to show that the fastest growth companies were also the most likely to fail in the five years following their fastest growth. The young me was always looking for, can we double this year? Can we triple? The me that's here right now is like, look, if we post 12% growth one year instead of 15, it's 12% growth. I'll keep taking it. And if I can keep stacking year after year of growth, I think long-term, the sustainability is much, much higher to worry about growth rather than rate of growth. And how did you get past that at the time? Because I think a lot of the entrepreneurs or people listening are high achievers. That's why they're listening to this in their free time. And you set that mark. Even if you get it, you want to beat it, I imagine. Or maybe you're getting 12% instead of 15% growth was still amazing. How would you get past that at that time? Yeah, I think just living through it. If we posted 12%, I want to post 12 and a half or 13 or 14. But what I'm seeing, the longer I do this, I've seen a lot of companies come and a lot of them go. And I guess if I were in this to like, build up this company and flip it as fast as I could, I'd be more worried about rapid growth. I know guys who do that. And 
the women and men that start those companies, that's a different game than I'm playing. It's not a bad one. It's just not what I'm playing. So for me, I want to see long-term sustainable health and growth. It just creates a different mindset. And the longer I do this and I see people come and go, the more I'm like, hmm, it really is about repeatable, sustainable growth, not just meteoric growth. And you mentioned earlier that you're writing a book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, my third book. It's called Culture Wins, The Roadmap to Building an Irresistible Workplace. And basically, it looks at our journey as a company and how we went from not even really thinking about culture to having it govern everything we do, even how much people get paid. And then not just our journey, but interviewing a lot of CEOs of other companies and saying, what have you learned in your journey and what are the best practices that are starting to emerge around this thing called culture? Is there one tip from the book that maybe gets someone excited where they'll buy the rest of it and want to hear something? But is there one thing that you learned in writing the book that you could share with us? Yeah, it, it's that I thought I was spending a lot of money on culture, but I'm nowhere near what other people are. Even my most frugal friends that are running great companies are spending a lot of money on culture because it always pays for itself. Is there a quick ratio that we might be able to use or something to think about on what we should be spending versus maybe what's not enough? Austin, you know, the other thing I would tell the young me is quit looking for quick answers. That is so nuanced. What I do as a service industry where I don't have any supply chain, I don't have anything other than computers, desks, and people. So my budget looks a lot different than my friend who owns a grocery store. I don't know what that percentage is. I think that's a good answer because, yeah, there are so many different industries that I've been part of the service industry. And yeah, everyone always wants to put a ratio on it and it's not obviously always possible. So I appreciate that answer. Looking back, is there one question I should have asked you that I didn't, that you wish I did? No, not that I think of. You did a really nice job. Well, I appreciate it. And then uh, I guess if someone wanted to say thank you for coming on the podcast, I want to reach out to you personally. What's the best way for them to say thank you for doing an episode? You know, it's funny. Just email me. My email is on our website. It's William at Vanderblumen.com. And you can Google Vanderblumen and misspell it a hundred different ways and it'll lead back to our site. Frankly, it's why we named the company what we named it. I didn't want it named after me, but the name is so messed. Our SEO consultant went off and came back. I'd said, find a name that works, but don't make it me. And he came back and he said, I know you're not gonna like the answer, but your last name is so screwed up that it Googles really, really well. So <laughs> just Google Vanderblumen, you'll find me and my email is William at Vanderblumen.com. Thank you for joining us, William. Thanks, Austin. Real treat. Appreciate what you're doing. If you liked this episode, here's a few other service-based interviews to tickle your fancy. Episode 62 with Andrew Sykes of Habits at Work. Episode 64 with Carl Meyer of Abundant. Or episode 68 with John Sharp of Staff Source. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial one 305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode. So don't be scared to get creative. As always, thanks for tuning in and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and loved ones. Oh,